In all the areas of integration of the Dzogchen view into the Vipassana world, I think there's one concept that uh, strikes more fear into the heart of uh, committed Theravadins than any other, <laughs> and that is the concept of non-duality. As soon as the non-dual teaching started to appear in the West, different Theravadan scholars sprang up to refute the view that uh, non-duality could be a legitimate philosophical perspective in Buddhism. And uh, I've been in some of these conversations myself. And just recently, I mean, it's not that long ago, I had a conversation with a Pali scholar, and we were talking about non-duality. And I have to say, it's taken me a while to figure out exactly what this word means. I don't know if you've really looked into it. It's used in a lot of different senses in Mahayana and Vajrayana writings. In fact, in the Vimalakirti Sutra, one of the Mahayana uh, sutras, it, there's a whole chapter on non-duality that goes into many of the dualities that are negated uh, by the Mahayana view. So I was having this conversation, and he said, um, well, non-duality doesn't mean... They're not trying to say that uh, consciousness and its object are separate, are they? I mean, are, di are, are one, sorry. They don't mean to say that consciousness and its object are one, do they? Well, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> that is what is meant. So I want to talk about that a little bit and then see how that kind of leads to the other aspects of non-duality. This is, this is a term that actually I've puzzled over a lot. Uh, you'll hear Rinpoche use it. You'll hear it uh, in, in Vajrayana uh, teachings, <coughs> the concept of a non-dual awareness. Now, one obvious meaning of that is uh, egolessness, that there's not a separate observer in you know, who's standing apart from experience and observing it. And that's a view that's held within the Theravada. That's essentially the view of anatta. The observer is not separate. But in all the Pali texts, as I think we talked about the other night, consciousness is uh, a datu, one of the 18 uh, datus or uh, elements of the sense doors that's separate from phenomena. So there's consciousness of sight, and that's different from the sight. It's said that in uh, the Theravadan view, sense experience arises and it's called contact when three things come together. In the case of the eye, let's say a visible form, a working eye, and the factor of eye consciousness. And those are considered to be three distinct things. And when those happen, contact arises. That means we see one another, or we see a tree, or whatever. And this is described in the suttas, the original words of the Buddha is recorded in the Pali suttas. Now, in the Abhidhamma, this concept got strengthened even further. You know, remember the Abhidhamma is that piece of the Pali canon that takes these original sutta concepts and really systematizes them really tries to lay, lay them out in a very detailed and uh, consistent map. So in the Abhidhamma, things that are really experienceable were given the name ultimate reality. Anything that's directly experienceable 
is called an ultimate. And things that aren't are called a conventional. So uh, just as an example, Turkey is a conventional reality. It's only a conventional designation for that creature out there. The actual experienceable aspects of Turkey, you could say, are the five aggregates or the six sense bases and their consciousnesses. Those are the discrete elements that make up Turkey, or human being, for that matter. But the concept human being is a bit of a conceptual invention. You can't experience a human being directly. You actually experience their form, their consciousness, their mental formations, etc. So in the Abhidhamma, when it classified these things as ultimate reality, it gave them uh, a kind of independent existence. And in the uh, literature, this is referred to as own being or svabhava. Svabhava, S-V-A-B-H-A-V-A. I mean, it, it had an independent existence all of its own. And the elements specifically that the Abhidhamma gave this independent existence to and called ultimate were uh, form, or you could say matter, rupa, the factors of mind, all the different mental um, uh, factors that operate both the emotional and the cognitive. So things like feeling and perception and attention are included in there, as well as all the unwholesome emotions, the afflictive emotions of greed, envy, hatred, delusion, as well as the refined and sublime uh, meditative states and qualities that Rinpoche was talking about today, compassion, faith, renunciation, loving-kindness, joy, etc. Those are all in a category called chetasikas, or mental factors. And then the third of these in the usual realm is called chitta, or consciousness. It's the thing that knows all the others. Those are in the realm of existence, and the fourth ultimate reality is nibbana. So those are the four. Matter, mental factors, and consciousness. That's a pretty concise map. I mean, that's a good map for what, what exists. But as the Abhidhamma view kind of went on and on, people really concretized these, these things until they kind of uh, got more importance than they should have. And particularly this notion of their independent existence got too entrenched. And people lost track, actually, of the emptiness, truth. Or you could say they lost track of the unifying uh, truth that holds all the, rel all the existence. And this was the notion that Nagarjuna attacked in his central work that we've talked about a few times, verses on the fundamental middle way. Because he showed that all these dhammas, all these different kinds of elements, are dependently arisen, except for Nibbana. All the others are dependently arisen and therefore empty. And he goes to great lengths to show that none of them actually has an independent existence. They all depend on other things. So you could say that really Nagarjuna's motive in writing his central work was to uh, refute the central philosophical position that the Abhidhamma had come to occupy in early Buddhism. And remember, this is about 100 CE. So the Abhidhamma view had gotten too concretized, too entrenched. Nagarjuna came along and basically destroyed it as a philosophical view 
because his logic was so impeccable. And that really opened up the gates for emptiness, also non-duality. But I want to stress, it's not that this idea of emptiness is absent from the Pali suttas, the original teachings of the Buddha in Pali. And I want to read a couple of passages uh, that really draw this out. This is from a a sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya called uh, the Kachanagota Sutta. So someone named Kachanagota approaches the Buddha and says, uh, what do you mean by right view? This is the first factor of the Eightfold Path. He's asking him to explain what is right view. And this is the Buddha's answer. This world, Kachana, for the most part depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to this world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to this world. Isn't that beautiful? If you see the arising correctly, you don't cling to the idea of non-existence. In other words, forms, sounds, smells, taste, touch, thoughts do arise. There is not zero here. There is something. Because there is something, the notion of non-existence is not right. It's one extreme. Uh, the sutta number is uh, Samyutta 12, sutta 15. 12 colon 15. But for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. In other words, if we look closely at our experience in meditation, any object that we think exists, you can take that sound as an example, if we stay with it, we see its disappearance. And when we see its disappearance, we know the world doesn't have a solid or permanent or stable kind of existence. No sense phenomenon does. So the Buddha continues, everything exists, Kachana. This is one extreme. Everything does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as conditioned, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as conditioned, consciousness comes to be. And he goes into the chain of dependent origination. You can recognize this as the 12 links of dependent origination. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away and cessation of ignorance comes cessation of formations, etc., etc. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. So the key is... To hold the view that things really exist is wrong. And you can see this is where the world is caught up. If you go to the person in the street and say, does this world exist or not? Uh, Yeah. If you say it doesn't, you're likely to get carted off somewhere, administered drugs. So in actual fact, the ordinary worldview is that this physical world is the ultimate reality. This is the ultimate reference point. 
And that is expressive of that view of a solid existence. But philosophers then came along and said, no, no, nothing exists. But the Buddha said, that's too far. So this is the whole idea of things being dependently arisen and existing in an empty way. You can't say they exist and you can't say they don't exist. There's another way that it's put in, a, in another sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya that I really love. The Buddha, again, is denying this idea of permanence. And he took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail. And he said, bhikkhus, there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and that will remain the same like eternity itself. If there was this much form that was permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, the living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. Isn't that interesting? Liberation would not be possible if there was even a speck of matter that was permanent and enduring. Why? Because the universe would get jammed up with existence and nothing could change enough for us to become liberated. So even the path in our liberation depends on emptiness, depends on nothing being fixed within us. This is kind of a radical statement. You know, I don't know if you've thought about the implications of this, but what does it do to the uh, conventional idea of God? If you think of God as the old man up in the sky with the gray beard, who is ever existent and has created the rest of this, this makes a clear statement about that kind of understanding of God. So that's why it's said that um, the Dalai Lama has said that Buddhism is atheistic. It's atheistic in the sense of a permanent creator God uh, having any possibility. So this is the statement in the suttas where the Buddha uh, makes that claim. I find that really interesting. Yes. <laughs> it's um, Samyutta 22, Sutta 97, called The Fingernail. This is the Fingernail Sutta. I'll read it one more time. The Blessed One took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and said to the bhikkhus, Bhikkhus, there is not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and that will remain the same just like eternity itself. If there was this much form that was permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, the living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. Basically means it could not be found in this world. So the living of the holy life is only possible due to emptiness. This really prefigures Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna's whole work is very much along these same lines. So I just want to really make clear that this idea of emptiness, of the mode of existence being between the extremes of solidly existing and not existing at all, is in the early text from the very beginning. So later Mahayana philosophers drew this out and made it central in the teachings, but it was there from the very early days of the Pali Suttas. 
So in the early days, this was understood, but I think what happened is that the Abhidhamma uh, somewhat got elevated over the years, and this kind of emptiness was a little bit lost track of. And I think this still goes on today. One of the history books that I read said that in some schools, uh, particularly in Burma and Sri Lanka today, the Abhidhamma is elevated above the suttas as an authoritative reference. I found that really interesting. What's, again, I've said this before, but again, I think what's so beautiful about uh, the Pali Suttas is that they can go with all the different schools. They go with the Theravada, they go with the Mahayana, they go with the Vajrayana. And I haven't really found any contradictions from that base. So, let's take a look at this question again of the non-dual awareness and what this means. The suttas do talk about consciousness and its object as, as two things. But let's investigate that a little further. We talked about consciousness the other night, but let, let's look at it again. As you're listening to this sound, the sound is an object in the physical world. It's one of the sense objects. But within you, as you're, as you're hearing, there's a hearing consciousness going on. So that's a mental activity or function because you're not dead. If you were a corpse or if you were fast asleep, there wouldn't be hearing consciousness going on even though the sound was present. Is that clear? Are we on all together? Okay. Sorry? Or if you were deaf. That's right, if the ear wasn't working. So. The consciousness is there along with the sound in every moment. The consciousness is what holds the sound, and that's what reveals the experience. So the question I want to ask is, is that one experience or two? You're hearing the sound, right? Okay, as you pay attention to the sound, and you know there's a physical thing there and there's consciousness. Did you pay attention? Is that one experience or two? Okay, we want to assume the mind, the mind is clear, so let's not introduce defilement, ego, and all that. We're just looking at the bare level of sense consciousness. But just in the hearing, how many objects do you hear? Well, it's, I'm, I'm, sh I'm shading it a little bit. But does the majority voting for one? Any that vote for two? Okay. I also experience it as one. And I want to kind of reconcile that with the teachings. I take it as, as one experience, and I wanna, I'll use the bowl to illustrate something. Is this bowl round or is it gold? <laughs> good, good answer. We could make two statements about it, couldn't we? And we could say the roundness is different from the goldness. That's true, isn't it? 
Roundness is one thing, and color is another. But how many bowls are there? There's only one bowl. So what I'd say is that in the hearing, there's only one experience, but we could pull out two different aspects of it. One's mental and one's physical. Just like with the bowl, there are two different aspects, but it's one unity. And that's the way that I understand it. In fact, it's the way that I often talk about it in teaching Vipassana retreats. That sense experience is one experience, but has two aspects, a mental aspect and a physical aspect in this case. And so that's the way that I understand awareness being non-dual. Even in the classic Theravadan view of consciousness of an object, we don't even have to go to the Rigpa understanding of cognizance and emptiness. Just in the simple Theravadan view of consciousness and object, I actually experience it as a lack of duality. But it can be analyzed into two parts if you want to look that way. And that makes sense. You know, it makes sense to talk about roundness and gold. It makes sense to talk about consciousness and sound. But originally, they're not two things. So I encourage you to play with this in your practice uh, when you're doing analytical practice, okay? Not when you're resting in the view, just rest. But as you're looking into your experience, take a look and see if you can get a sense of how awareness and its contents are really one thing. So it's not like awareness is in our brain and the objects are out there and somehow they come together, but awareness and the object are one event which has two aspects to it. And I think this is part of the understanding of Rigpa. In the tradition, they often say that appearances and um, emptiness are inseparable. Awareness and emptiness are inseparable. So, in the same token, awareness and appearances are inseparable. This is really what's meant by cognizance. So it's really the unity of the awareness and its contents. And I think this is also, if you look into your experience, this is also the experience pointed to by the Theravadan analysis. So I believe that the term non-dual awareness uh, can be really comfortable for Vipassana practitioners and doesn't have to seem foreign or even all that obscure. It was, it was strange to me for a long time. Now, once we get into that level of non-duality, the non-dual awareness, other things fall out of that. We'll just do a short exercise. I don't want to spend a long time on this, but let's just do a short exercise. And think back to why you took up the spiritual path. I'd like you to think about the origins of your entering on a spiritual path. There's probably some degree of suffering in your life or else there was intellectual curiosity and the suffering came later. (laughs) But at one time or another, if you're still working, it's probably because of suffering. And that suffering for most of us generated a desire or an aspiration to be free, to reach a place in life that didn't have that suffering. And this uh, marked the start of our entry into the path, which we have persevered with over time, for many of us over years, with great effort and diligence, and have felt results uh, all along the way. 
changes in ourselves. So this concept of uh, the seeker entering upon the path, exerting effort over time, and realizing changes is an integral part of spiritual life. And without that motivation and progression, I don't think there would be any of us here tonight. So, bear that in mind. And now I'd like to just ask you to uh, do a moment of uh, Rigpa practice. You don't have to change your position. But just in this moment, as you're sitting there, uh, look back at the nature of mind. See the empty essence and the cognizant nature. Feel the openness in this moment. Where is the seeker? Where is the one who's journeyed along the path for years and years? Where is the one who's changed, who's realized results? Are they to be found? That's what I hoped you would say. (laughs) So, in a way of speaking, we would say that the seeker, the path, progress, coming to the end of suffering are all conventional truths. But we actually look for the seeker and the progress and the path. It's not really there. So we'd say those are conventional truths. So if you look at the bare experience of the moment, no seeker, no path, no path, no goal. And this is stated explicitly in uh, the Dzogchen teachings many times as saying that uh, there's no difference between Buddhas and ordinary beings on this level of ultimate nature. We share the same ultimate nature with the Buddha. The difference, it said, is that the Buddha realizes it and we don't. But the ultimate nature is the same. So when we look back at this empty essence and nature clarity, the Buddha sees that, we see that as the way things really are. So when we look in this way, we break down the duality between an ordinary being entering the path and a fully enlightened one. We break down the duality between the path and the goal. And ultimately, we break down the duality between samsara and nirvana. So these are the other significances, other meanings, a few other meanings of the term non-duality. And they really come out of the implications of the non-dual awareness and the lack of ego in the moment. Of course, this is, on the, this is on the level of ultimate seeing, on the level of conventional truth. And I like the way Gerardo said that the statues would often uh, be, be there with their arms crossed, emphasizing the unity of conventional and ultimate truth, the inseparability. One of the things I love about uh, the Buddhist path is that it, the ultimate truth does not deny the conventional truth. The conventional truth doesn't go away. We understand that there is a seeker, there is a path, there is progress, there is a move to the end of suffering on the conventional level. 
And we honor that and respect it with our practice, with our body, speech, and mind. But at the same time, we know on the ultimate level that our fundamental nature is the same as the Buddha's. And so on the level of ultimate nature, there's no distinction between Buddhas and beings, no distinction between path and goal, no distinction between samsara and nirvana. So that was the first piece that I wanted to talk about, um, a little bit on non-duality. And uh, the, what I feel is really the, um, the congruence between the Pali texts and the Mahayana and Vajrayana teachings on it. So I don't think it's an area that uh, is in conflict for us. So yeah, we can take a few questions at this point. Margo? Coming is uh, at the moment of suffering, and the seeker arises. Then there is a seeker, right? Yeah, it appear it appears that way, and if um, we believe in it, um, we we really perpetuate the suffering. And if we look clearly, we see uh, the only what gives rise to the sense of the seeker is some kind of clinging. So we see that what's, what's actually there is grasping and some identification with it that gives rise to the sense of a seeker and the sense of someone who is suffering. But when we look at it really closely, there's not actually a separate being there, but there is grasping. There is seeking at that moment. There may be. Uh, if there's grasping, there's some form of craving going on. So I think it would be true to say there's the activity of seeking. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to say it. Thanks. Distinctions between the Hindu view and the Buddhist view have been made along the way. Where does the Vedanta view come into this stream? The non-dual? Are you thinking of the Advaita Vedanta view? (coughs) Right. Right. The Ramana Maharshi view. I'm not well enough acquainted with that system to really answer the question. The Advaita Vedanta view comes really close to the non-dual view of you could say Dzogchen. It comes really close. My personal sense is that there's a little more investment in the, the existent nature of the self with a capital S than there is in the quality of Rigpa. That there's a little more attribution of beingness to the self with a capital S than there is with Rigpa. I don't, I don't know that that's the truth, but that's a little bit the feeling I get from it. And that's really as much as I can say. But the, the, you know, the philosophies and practices are similar. similar. And I, I'd be, I haven't looked into the history of Advaita, but I'd be very surprised if it didn't grow up alongside Mahayana Buddhism. It did. It did. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, the Dharma may be one, but there's a Hindu non-duality and a Buddhist non-duality. Yeah, thanks, Michael. That's great. Any other questions at this point? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I was talking with Rinpoche about how body, strong body can take any um, pain from having a cold and so forth, even can pull me out of the ability to stay in the non-dual state. Mm -hmm. And he said that that's a, a very advanced practice that we all need to get to before we reach death, which is a very painful time, and suggested <laughs> comment was that um, she asked Rinpoche about the difficulty of staying in Rigpa when there's body pain, and he replied, it's really important that we practice in that way to prepare ourselves for death. He's talked about this on other retreats that I've been at too, and he says that he really likes to practice when he's sick because he wants to find out if his ability to be in Rigpa is conditioned by the clarity of his five physical senses. Because when we're sick, our, our five physical senses get dull. And he wanted to make sure that the clarity of Rigpa isn't tied in his practice or his understanding to the clarity of the five physical senses. It's an, it's an important point. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Slowing down helps, huh? Yeah. Okay. The other thing I wanted to do tonight was uh, to just talk a little more about Tibetan Buddhism from uh, my limited experience. And I'm going to pass out a little later uh, a chart that's kind of an overview. My feeling, having hung around the edges of Tibetan Buddhism for about 10 years now, is that you can't tell the players without a scorecard. <laughs> and there are a number of schools and sub-schools and so many different uh, Rinpoches and teachings and deities so I want to give you just a really simple cheat sheet that will put you on the map <laughs> with, with Tibetan Buddhism. But first, actually, I, I just wanted to tell a couple of stories because Tibetan practice is full of these stories of magic and mystery, just really in, incomprehensible kinds of magic and mystery. So I wanted to tell the story of the founding of the Kagyu lineage. And uh, a lot of people know the life story of Milarepa. He was one of the great yogis in the Kagyu lineage. But the founder was an uh, Indian teacher named Tilopa. And Tilopa was born in 988. 
So about a hundred years before the signing of the Magna Carta, when Europe was just a mess and chaos and plunging into the Dark Ages, actually the, the Mahasiddhas of India were probably at their peak. Buddhism was peaking in India around this time. Tilopa was born in a Brahmin family, but joined a monastery and uh, took up the monastic Buddhist life when he was relatively young. But in the middle of his monastic life, he uh, was visited by a vision. A Dakini came and gave him an initiation or an empowerment and gave him this message. Speak like a madman, leave the robes, and practice in secret. And he took it to heart, just from the vision of a Dakini that appeared to him. So he left the monastery and uh, went out and practiced very kinds of uh, raw ascetic practices. And he became uh, reviled for having cast aside his Brahmin heritage and the monastic life. But he continued with these rather ascetic practices for over 10 years, just wandering around. But he hadn't yet realized. And then he decided to retire to a small hut in Bengal and just meditate. And while he was living in the small hut in Bengal, he had another vision. And this was a Vajradhara. Vajradhara is one of the deities in uh, the Yidam practice. And Vajradhara com uh, communicated to Tilopa the essence of reality. And at that moment, Tilopa became fully realized and began to teach. This was happening in India, so it hasn't gotten to Tibet yet. Then uh, a little bit later, Naropa came along. Naropa was born in 1016, so it's about 30, he's about 30 years younger than Tilopa. Naropa was born to a wealthy family, ordained and became a great scholar. Really fell in love with studying. And he rose to the position of abbot of Nalanda University, which was the great Buddhist institution in, in northern India. And it continued his course of study. And one day he was sitting out in a courtyard at Nalanda, studying a text, just continuing the scholastic track. And this old woman just appeared next to him. And the old woman uh, had a dark blue complexion to her skin. Her eyes were red and really sunken. Her mouth was gaping and her teeth were just all rotten. She was leaning on a cane. And uh, she said, oh, what text are you studying? And of course, Naropa is very polite. She may have had bad breath, too, but he didn't you know, recoil. And he told her the text that he was studying. And she said, do you understand that text? And he said, uh, yes, I understand the written words. And she starts laughing, very happy, joyful. Oh, he understands the written words. And then Naropa uh, wanted to please her even further. And so he said, um, I also understand the deeper meaning. And then the old woman started crying. Tears just started rolling down her face. She just started weeping. And he said, why are you unhappy? I thought you would be happy that I understand the deeper meaning. She said, I was so happy when you told me the truth, that you understand the words. 
But then you lied. And you said you understand the deeper meaning, and you don't. You're just a scholar. And you haven't put these teachings into practice to realize them. She said, uh, you need to find my brother and get him to instruct you. That's my order to you. And then she disappeared on the spot, vanished. And he realized that she was a Dakini. So what do you do if you're the abbot of Nalanda? And a strange-looking old woman comes and tells you you don't understand anything and then vanishes. Well, a lesser being would probably have said, oh, too much curry for lunch. (laughs) I better go have a nap. But it's really a testament to Naropa that he didn't. And he took her message as real. So he went and he announced to the monastic community that he was going to leave his post as abbot, he was going to give up his monk's robes, and he was going to wander looking for this brother whose location she never told him. Didn't tell him the name of her brother, didn't tell him the location. And so Naropa did it. And all the other monks were saying, you can't do this. You're going to be considered a fool. You've risen to such a place of eminence. You're the highest monk in this whole district. The patron is going to be extremely disappointed (laughs) if you do this. He'll take away our grants. (laughs) But Naropa had such conviction that he did it. So he went off and wandered to the east. For, For years he was wandering in the forests, the jungles, and the mountains, everywhere he could looking for this brother whose name he didn't know, whose location he didn't know, and he had many, many trials, many difficult situations, and he didn't see any relevance to them. He thought they were all just uh, obstacles, wastes of time, not learning anything. Later, of course, they all turned out to be really crucial Dharma teachings, but he didn't see it at the time. He thought he was just wandering in bad fortune. And he didn't feel he was learning anything. And finally, he became so despairing that uh, he, he gave up hope. I'm never going to learn anything. I'm never going to find the brother. I'm never going to become realized. And he decided to kill himself. Just at that moment, Talopa appeared. Talopa was the, quote, brother that he had been instructed to find, although he didn't know the name. Talopa appeared as a blue-black figure, cotton trousers and a top knot, big eyes shot with blood, red eyes. And Talopa told him that he had actually been accompanying him all the way. And he knew that Naropa was actually a practitioner of great capacity and that he shouldn't give up, that he was very capable of realizing the teachings. So Naropa became Talopa's disciple and practiced with him for 12 years went through many, many hardships that were said to be the result of uh, his past karma. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, awful, for 12 years, not not really realizing. Finally, Naropa came to Tilopa. Tilopa said, okay, the time is ripe. I'm going to give you uh, the final teaching, the final oral teaching. 
So he said, but first you have to make an offering to me. And Naropa said, I don't have anything but my body. So he cut off his fingers. And he gave to Lopa his fingers in the blood from his fingers as his offering. And then Talopa said, that'll do. <laughs> and he picked up a dirty sandal and he smacked Naropa in the face with it. At that moment, Naropa lost consciousness. But when he came back into consciousness, he realized. He saw the ultimate truth and his mind was liberated. And from then on, he was a great Mahasiddha who taught many, many people. One of the people he taught was a Tibetan named Marpa. And Marpa is the one who really brought the lineage into, into Tibet and established the Kagyu lineage. And Marpa became the teacher, the true teacher of Milarepa. And that then is the line of descent for the rest of the Kagyu lineage. But it arose out of the Mahasiddha lineage in India. So these Mahasiddhas are wild, wild people. And that wild energy and the mysterious, crazy, irrational, unconventional, defying of social conventions, all those things pervade particularly the Kagyu lineage and the Nyingma lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. So I thought now I'd pass out uh, the little cheat sheet. If Ruby would take half, and maybe you could do a half to, maybe Carol would take and just send around. And we can take a couple of questions. Annabelle? Yes, um, and I don't know whether he knew of the existence of Vajradhara, the deity, or not, but uh, it came to him spontaneously in the vision and transmitted the teaching in the vision. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Vajradhara is a very highly regarded deity in the system. So as you get this overview sheet, um, you just notice that across the top are the names of the four, school, the four primary schools in Tibetan Buddhism. I put this together primarily based on one book that I've really, really appreciated. It's called Indestructible Truth by a professor at Naropa. <laughs> we have two faculty members of Naropa here. You'll find out at the end of the retreat. Do you guys want to just raise your hand so people will know if they want to look you up? The dean and a professor at Naropa. Um, and this is really a, a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic introduction to Tibetan Buddhism, the best overview that I know of called Indestructible Truth. Um, but I, Reginald Ray is the author. Highly recommended. It's on, it'll be on the book list. Um, but not all the information was in this book, so some of it's mine. So any errors are mine. Um, I have introduced other stuff. So uh, I put the Nyingma school first because it was the first in order of time. Padmasambhava is the figure who's considered to have brought the first teachings into Tibet in the 8th century. So he's there as the founder. And I mentioned the current lineage head. It used to be Dujum Rinpoche, but since he's passed away, it's currently Painor Rinpoche. 
And I did run this chart by both Gerardo and Sokni Rinpoche uh, to get their buy-off. So I did check it out a little further. And uh, some of the main historical teachers that you'll hear that come from the Nyingma lineage, Yeshe Sogyal, who was the consort of Padmasambhava, Longchenpa, sometimes called the Omniscient One, who lived in the uh, 14th century, wrote many books that are available in, in English translations. Patro Rinpoche, who Rinpoche mentioned the other day as this wandering beggar, used to refer to himself as an old dog, very humble. And then I mentioned some of the current teachers in the Nyingma lineage. Some of these people could go actually in Kagyu as well. Uh, they're also sometimes uh, considered non-sectarian or Rime teachers. But I put them in the Nyingma lineage because they uh, primarily have taught Dzogchen as their main meditation practice. So these are just some names that you might become familiar with as you look at uh, books and tapes from, from recent teachers. A couple of Western teachers in the Nyingma lineage, Lama Suryadas and Sultrim Alioni, are teaching currently. And then I, I put the kind of central deities. In, in this lineage, Vajrasattva is really very central, as uh, Gerardo explained this afternoon in the Nundro practice. The important monasteries connected with this lineage and the central teachings. So the Kagyu school um, and the Nyingma school both are very, very practice-oriented. And I think Gerardo mentioned that. That if you come into these schools, they'll get you meditating very quickly. They also have a strong emphasis on lay practitioners. So a lot of the lamas in these two schools are married. Sokni Rinpoche, as you know, is married. Although his brother Mingyu Rinpoche is a monastic. So in these two lineages, there are both monks and lay people as the primary teachers. They're very closely related in their view. The central meditation teaching within Kagyu is uh, called Mahamudra. It includes a piece that Kalka Ergen says is, is identical with Dzogchen, called Essence Mahamudra. Um, there are a number of different schools of Kagyu. Sokni Rinpoche and his father actually are in the Drukpa Kagyu lineage, but also Nyingma, so they, they, they hold both. So the Kagyu and Yingmi, you get a lot of overlap, and the two are on really, really friendly terms. The next school over are the, are the Geluks. They're a different kettle of fish. Um, I thought that the Dalai Lama was the lineage head of the Geluks, but Rinpoche corrected me. Ganden Tripa is the lineage holder. It's the head of Ganden Monastery. It's one of the most important Gelugpa monasteries. But the Dalai Lama is a Gelugpa monk. In the Gelugpa tradition, the emphasis is still on monasticism, which is why I put as one of the central teachings the Vinaya. In fact, Gerardo said he couldn't think of a single Gelugpa lama, you know, traditional lama, who's married. The virtually all the Gelugpa lamas are monastics. So very strong emphasis on monastic life, a lot of adherence to the Mahayana teachings. They get to Tantra, but uh, only generally a little later. So a lot of emphasis on uh, Mahayana teachings on, bodhis on bodhisattva vows, on bodhicitta. Obviously, you have this within Nyingma and Kagyu too, but it's more at the heart of the Geluk. 
Um, Stephen Batchelor said that he was trained in the Gelukpa tradition as a monk under Geshe Rabtan for something like seven or eight years and never learned how to meditate. This is not untypical. In the Gelukpa tradition, you might go 20 years before they actually let you sit on a cushion and give you meditation instructions. So I have heard. Uh, so Stephen said he felt he had to leave the Gelukpa tradition to learn how to meditate, and that's when he went to Korea and became a Zen monk. So a lot of emphasis in the, in the Geluk tradition on study. So monasticism, study, strict adherence to the Vinaya, uh, those are kind of the characteristics. Mm-hmm. You did meditate. <laughs> good, good. The comment was that she was with Lama Yeshe at one of his monasteries in England. Did you say? Yeah, Kana's head, and they were meditating. Yeah, thanks. They definitely have all the tantric stuff. They do it, but when it comes, they do it through visualization, where the Nyingma and Kagyu uh, uh, lay lamas, the married lamas, do it through both visualization and actual practice of uh, practice with the consort. Now the Sakya lineage is interesting. It's the least visible of the four in this country. And none of us could think of any Western teachers from the Sakya lineage as an example. And only Rinpoche could think of any contemporary teachers in the Sakya lineage. So I don't know if it's just that it's smaller in this country, it's certainly less prominent, um, but it is still uh, alive and well, doing fine. So I find it helpful when I hear Tibetan teachings to just check and hear what school they're from, because the flavor changes with the school. And that was one of the reasons I just wanted to mention this. As you start to delve into the readings from this tradition, check out which of the schools you're reading from, and just notice that they, they may have different flavors. Can you give us the flavor of Sakya? Sakya, I was told by Gerardo, is uh, more like Geluk in emphasizing a lot of study for a long time before meditation. Walter? Um, Lama Paul is what, which lineage? Kagyu. Lama Paulden, who teaches locally, is Kagyu. I don't know. I mean, is, it, is it like another um, like Lama person? Or? It could be. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Should we turn off the tape recorder here? <laughs> no, no. no I'll, I'll keep. This will be the PG rated version. It's PG rated. Actually, a Lama's consort in, in these traditions, if they're lay practitioners, a Lama's consort is their wife. And they often marry with someone who will, be a, will want to be a practitioner in that style. Uh, then there are lots of stories of solitary lay practitioners mm -hmm. living and, and having all kinds of consorts who may also be solitary practitioners um, living, you know, living remotely. And there are lots of stories also, I can't remember the book, but there are lots of stories of women 
Vajrayana practitioners who picked and chose from men to be their consort. And the women were living remotely and had very strong spiritual power. So it doesn't just go in one direction. Nancy? It's a really good question. If the chart is horizontal, it shows four schools. How did the Dalai Lama get such an exalted status? He is the head of the government in exile, and he is considered kind of the spiritual head of, of all the schools. Politics. <laughs> it was basically politics. For many centuries, the Kagyus actually were the political heads of Tibet. And then I think it was an alliance between the Gelukes and um, was it the Mongolians? Khan. Genghis, Khan. Genghis Khan, I think that's right, that established the political power that shifted uh, the balance of power and elevated the first Dalai Lama to be the overall head. And that happened, well, there's the date of the fifth Dalai Lama. You know, it happened a long time ago. Our current one is the 14th. Um, but there have been power struggles throughout because to, you know, Tibet has been a theocracy. There's a lot of wealth connected with the monasteries and the heads of the monasteries. So there have been struggles for the control of that wealth and power. The Panchen Lama or the Karmapa? The most recent one was that there were, uh, after the last Karmapa died, the 16th Karmapa died, uh, two candidates were put forward for his replacement uh, as the latest incarnation. The Dalai Lama uh, designated one, who is the young man who recently escaped from Tibet and I think is being trained now. I'm, I'm not sure if it's Bhutan or Dharamsala, but is being, Dharamsala, is being trained. And there's another one, uh, I think favored by Taisitu Rinpoche? Sharmapa, thank you. Favored by the Sharmapa. Um, and again, there is a, obviously, uh, a power struggle going on because whoever ends up being recognized as a Karmapa will have lots of influence, lots of visibility, lots of monasteries, lots of donations, lots of students. And... Um, because the Dalai Lama favors the young man who escaped from Tibet, that certainly lends a lot of weight, but there are still people who will favor the other. So sometimes even the Tibetans don't know. Yeah, thanks for the clarification. That was this was centuries ago. It was the it was the Galuks. Lee? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Alive and well in the Bay Area. 
Sorry, Beth. What does the word project uh, refer to? What does the word tantra refer to? Um, I think Gerardo touched on it today, and I mentioned it the other night, that ta the tantras are the practices that take the awakened state as the basis for the path. So all the Vajrayana practices are considered tantric practices, and there are texts underlying them that are called the tantras, as texts. Um, so the practices that Gerardo was talking about of the, the nundro, the visualization, and uh, the nature of mind practices are all considered part of the, the Vajrayana. And then the word tantra, does anybody know what that? The question is, is it in any other schools besides the Vajrayana? It's in Shingon in Japan, but that's considered a Vajrayana school. But they don't have the whole of range of Vajrayana practices. They have some deity visualizations. But as far as I know, Tantra and Vajrayana are pretty synonymous. Oh, that's true. There is also Hindu Tantra. <laughs> Okay, so maybe this is a good place to wrap up tonight. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 13, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.